Hello there, I'm Aaron Martell, and welcome to Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews, a podcast where we talk about and review a rock album of our choice. This episode, I've got a whole roundtable of returning guest co-pilots with me, so this should be pretty fun. First up, we have the fat bearded vinyl guy, Matt Carwick. Hello, hello. Next up, from the Little Bit of Synergy podcast, Tony Thomas. Hey guys, what's up? Next up, the voodoo child, Davey Lee Smith. Here's Davey. How y'all doing? And last but not least, we've got Patreon legend Nick Dunning. Hello, everyone. Fellas, I thank all of you for coming back on the R4 podcast. Now let's have some fun. So in this episode, we're going to review Metallica's 1988 album and Justice for All. So Matt, what's your Metallica history and your and Justice for All story? I came to Metallica right here with this album, which is why I wanted to be on this episode so badly. Back in the fall of 1989, I was in eighth grade, and a buddy of mine, Aaron Palmer, gave me a dubbed copy of Motley Crue's Dr. Feelgood, and that changed my life forever, turning me on to hard rock and, and basically the good stuff. And later on, he was telling me about this song about a soldier that got blown apart by a landmine and was basically a stump. So he dubbed Justice for me, and that was literally my introduction to Metallica. So for the next three-plus decades, I have been a full-blown Metallicat. I did the Vinyl Club for the two years. They've done that so far. I love all the albums for what they are. And yes, I can even appreciate St. Anger if I don't pay too much attention to the drums. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're not the only one. On my YouTube channel a couple of years ago, I did what I called Metallica, where I talked about five Metallica albums that resonated with me the most, obviously in the month of May. And Justice was the first one I did. This album holds a special place for me because this was my introduction to the band. Awesome. Tony. Okay, so as far as Metallica goes, I actually had gotten on the the bandwagon. Um, well, my, my first introduction to them was uh, 598 one summer actually through the bootleg taping industry trade the underground trade I, somebody got me a copy of that and and i was on board uh late 80s and then i heard master of puppets and so i kind of came in on the uh on the cliff years as well um and justice for all you know was coming right off of the momentum of 598 so and then of course Jason Newstead's first uh, contribution was was notable. This was this reminds this takes me back instantly to my freshman year in high school, and uh, yeah, I, I also it's it's a noteworthy album to me as well. So this is going to be interesting. All right, Davey. You know, I really can't remember if I ever heard any Metallica on the radio back when I was a little kid. But I know for a fact, during my teen years, I was introduced to Metallica during my Guitar Hero and Rock Band playing career. I had to call upon my superpower again, so there it is. 
I want to say it was Guitar Hero 3 Legends of Rock where I heard this song, or should I say this particular one? <laughs> I want to say it was this, the song one from this album, since it was the final song in Guitar Hero 3. I also believe that this is what got me exposed to thrash metal at the same time. Then the Rock Band game had Inner Sandman from the Black Album. So I'll give that song some credit since it helped me get into Metallica. So it holds a bit of a spot for me, even though it's not in my it's not in my top Metallica songs. So still, I have to give it credit for helping me get exposed to them. Now, by the time Guitar Hero Metallica was released, like when we talked about Van Halen 1, like what happened to me when I got more exposed to Van Halen's uh, deeper catalog with Guitar Hero Van Halen, kind of the same thing with Guitar Hero Metallica. It gave me a good whiff of Metallica's catalog including a couple songs from this here album. Uh, same goes for Black and then the title track and Justice for All being downloadable songs for a rock band. But I'll say my piece on those songs as we go along here. It wasn't until recent years when I finally dove into the first four albums and listened to them all the way, including the ones that I was a bit late to the party with. All this pretty much cemented me being a casual fan of Metallica. So that's where I basically come in with Metallica and in Justice for All in particular. All right. Nick, how about you? Okay, well, I probably got into Metallica with this album as well, fairly slowly. Um, like in my early teens, I was more kind of into Queen, Dire Straits, Belinda Carlisle. Um, and my journey into heavy music started really with Wasp and Guns N' Roses. And then I got into Iron Maiden. And uh, <clears throat> I never really got the kind of whole thrash thing. I think to me it was kind of too fast and angry at the time um, and I've been thinking about it a bit over the last week trying to work out why it didn't appeal to me back then and I think it's probably because I grew up with a kind of a grounding in, in like rock and roll um, from my parents and I was naturally drawn to songs with more probably more of a groove to them and um, you know obviously like Wasp and GNR are more rock and roll bands really just with heavier guitars and it was like the super precision of thrash kind of didn't appeal to me at the time um but i'd always had a, a soft spot for the idea of metallica because my friend uh, from school dom was really into them and um, we used to go into manchester like every saturday on the train um which is kind of the big smoke for us and we'd always hang around a couple of record shops and i'd always be looking for wasp stuff and he'd always get something by metallica and i remember him getting a picture disc of um, jumping the fire um when we must have been i don't know 14 or 15 i guess and um i just thought the artwork was really cool um but it wasn't really i guess until i started hearing um this album that my ears kind of pricked up and somebody which is probably this guy dom will have made a cassette of it for me and then once the black album came out they obviously went mainstream kind of in our school and most of my friends got into them and then over time i kind of went back and got into their earlier albums um which i love as well uh yeah i've seen them a couple of times over the years once it the Freddie Mercury tribute concert, which was the first time, which was quite cool. You went to that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was, it was a big deal for us. Um, so we were all Queen fans. And yeah. Then, yeah, obviously you had Guns N' Roses, Metallica, um, Extreme, Death Leopard, all sorts. It was a great, great gig. And I saw them in I saw them in Poland, actually. I lived in Poland for a while in 1999. Um, saw them there. And uh, yeah, fantastic. So yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, cracking through this album. All right. So this is our fifth Metallica episode, and as I've said before, I come into the band with this album too. I first tried Master of Puppets in 1986, but it didn't grab me at first. I kind of like what you were talking about, Nick. It was too fast. It was too heavy. I was a hair metal guy, and I just wasn't ready for this kind of music yet. So two years later, Justice comes out, and MTV was hyping up the fact that Metallica were going to release their first ever music video for the song One. 
And they had that video in constant rotation. I, and I watched it. They hyped it really, really heavily. And the planets must have just aligned at that time because it grabbed me immediately and it made me curious. So I borrowed the cassette of Justice from Sister Shannon and it just clicked because she had she got into Metallica before I did. And once I stole it from her and listened to it, I just couldn't stop listening to it. I it just that was it. I gave Shannon her tape back and got my own along with the first three albums. And I just quickly became a huge fan of this band at the time. Now I'll give you some basic facts about this record pulled from Wikipedia. And Justice for All is the fourth studio album by American heavy metal band Metallica, released on September 7th, 1988 on Elektra Records. It was produced by Fleming Rasmussen, James Hetfield, and Lars Ulrich, and was recorded from January 28th to May 1st, 1988 at One on One Recording, Los Angeles, California. It reached number six on the U.S. Billboard 200 chart and is certified eight times platinum by the RIAA. And here's the band's lineup card. We have James Hetfield on vocals, rhythm guitar, acoustic guitar, and lead guitar. Kirk Hammett on lead guitar. Jason Newstead on bass, supposedly. <laughs> and Lars Ulrich on drums. Okay, let's commence a track-by-track analysis of this album. This is a double album on vinyl, so we kick off disc one, side one, with Blackened. Written by James Hetfield, Lars Ulrich, and Jason Newstead. Matt, what do you think? Well, we're starting with a fade-up of orchestrated guitars that reminds me of the beginning of Queen's A Day at the Races. And then the drums kick in, and we are off and running. This is an angry and aggressive song about the end of the world. And the way things are going these days, I'm saying bring it on. Hashtag Giant Meteor 2024. (laughs) Humanity had a good run. Maybe it's time for the Dolphins to take over. So long. Thanks for all the fish. The bridge reminds me of Adam Sandler's Cajun Man bit from Saturday Night Live. Opposition, premonition, expiration, compromise, (laughs) masturbation, abbreviation, corrugation, planet dies, elicitation, ejaculation, emasculation, (laughs) all the guys, correlation, (laughs) decoration, delegation, kills us all. As I'm listening to this song, something in the back of my head is telling me something's missing. And then it hits me. Kirk Hammett's solo doesn't seem to be completely drenched in wah. This is a killer song, and it is one of my favorite Metallica album openers. Tony? Yeah, the first thing that, that jumps out is the, uh, the orchestration the, of the fugue of uh, dual reversed guitars in harmony and guitar harmony. I always thought that was really cool the way they, the way they did that, and then straight into uh, just a pissed off worldview song, and that really is where we were in uh, 1988. Hmm. We were scared, yeah, and and 
yeah, this, this, every time I, the past few weeks, just reliving this has been, it's been interesting because it seems like we're dicking around with the idea of nukes again. Oh boy. How history repeats itself. DLS. Metallica do like starting their albums with a quiet guitar figure, do they? This intro was done, like Matt said, by reversing the guitars and a few overdubs that gradually builds and builds up until, bam, the song blasts off like a rocket with a badass riff that was composed by former Flotsam and Jetsam bassist Jason Newstead. That's his writing credit for the song, which him and James Heffield were jamming, were jamming together, and James was impressed that Jason came up with it. Newstead was proud of that moment, and he should be, considering he's the new guy impressing the head honcho and his contribution ends up being the leadoff track, which is great for the new guy. Speaking of Newstead, unfortunately, this album is known for Jason Newstead's bass being so inaudible. But good thing we have versions of the album that were remixed or obviously people playing bass covers to the entire album. But for that to happen to Newstead back then is a freaking crime, in my opinion. I know Kirk Hammett stated that they gave him a hard time because they didn't want him to think that he waltzed into a perfect situation. That's what he stated in that VH1 Behind the Music documentary anyway. If you guys haven't seen that, you should. that's what Kirk stated anyway. Speaking of Kirk Hammett, him and James play the intro riff, then they play a new chugging riff for the verses in which James just brings out that iconic bark of his. I'm a huge fan of the, of the voice of classic James Hetfield. And this was before he did those stupid mannerisms that he would do on the Black Album, the successor to this. In this case, Hetfield's lyrics are an end-of-the-world scenario. Lars Ulrich incorporates some double bass after the first chorus. After the second chorus, the band eases up on the tempo before launching into Hammett's Scorch Fest of a solo, which maintains the same tempo during the first half, and the original tempo picks back up during the latter half. Back into the main riff for final verse and chorus, then slam the door ending. This song is how you kick off a ball game right here, folks. Get ready and buckle up. Nick. Okay, so <laughs> a bit of repetition, which you always get, Aaron, I guess. Um, it, That's it, what I always do, man. Let it rip. Yeah, exactly. It starts with this low, long, slow fade and introduction with the whiny guitars, which gives a real kind of sense of foreboding and this feeling that, you know, something big is coming along. Um, and the guitars stop and there's like a tiny pause and then the first riff kicks in. It's like a skittering kind of stop-start riff with just the guitars. And then Lars comes in with that fast, persistent snare hit, which, as I mentioned before, has absolutely no groove to it whatsoever. It's so precise. Um, the intro riff plays through a few times, and we get into the first heavy kind of verse riff. <laughs> I realized when I was started listening to the album in preparation for this that there's going to be a lot of um, saying, and then they play this riff a couple of times, and then it jumps to that riff, and then to another, and then back to that one. So I'll try not to do that as much as I can. Uh, the verse riff's good, fast, heavy chugger, and it speeds up a bit as it goes back to the intro riff. Chorus is a bit of a, um, you know, it's got that shout-along kind of quality to it. Then you get the slowdown bit in the, the halftime section with James shouting um, out his words, the kind of call and response, which, uh, which Matt so ably um, <laughs> did for us. Uh, it's a good, heavy, satisfying riff. And we get the guitar harmony passage, which morphs into the guitar solo. I always feel that um, the beginning of this solo is quite a, almost like scene setting where it's not really letting rip. He's kind of staying regimented and keeps within kind of the beat of the music below it. And then you get this brief pause and then the, what I think of as the real solo kind of kicks in and Kirk's got his guitar cranked up and uh, some proper emotion in the first kind of long screaming note that he plays. And then you've got a real trademark kind of hammock descending lick. Um, and again, I might be saying that a few times in this review. 
again, more trademarks of dive bombs, squeals uh, over the fast shifting rhythms, another big whammy bar bomb, and then we're back into the intro riff again. So this bit, I don't know what people think, but for me, when it comes back in now on the third kind of go round of the riff, it feels to me like Lars loses the timing. It's always just kind of bugs me, and I can't work out if he's, it's like he's a beat behind the rest of the band, and I can't work out if it's deliberate or if it's like, you know, some kind of clever timing thing I don't understand, or whether he's just messed it up. But um, it kind of gets back to where it should be, and we, and we, we kind of back into the verse, final chorus, and then that short, short, short stop. Um, so, yeah, absolutely cracking song, this. Uh, really good indicator of what we're going to get over the rest of the album. Okay. Let's get the elephant in the room out of the way. The production. Famously no bass, or more precisely, so low in the mix, it's damn near inaudible. We're all going to be saying it. We're all already saying it. Jason Newstead got fucked hard by Ulrich and Hetfield, and they've given tons of excuses over the years why they did it. But really, to my mind, the problem is, is that Jason wasn't Cliff Burton. But besides that, the kick drum annoyingly clicks instead of thumps, and the drums in general, they're so dry, they're fucking gasping for reverb. The entire production is dry, it's cold and boxy, it's nearly sterile, nearly claustrophobic. If this had come out today, I would have been like, what the fuck, why did they do this? It sounds like shit. But I didn't know that when I first heard this. I wasn't tuned into music production details yet. What I did hear was a motherfucker of a riff, like you said, DLS, Newstead brought to the band, but it was off kilter. It took me a few listens for my brain to process it. I heard tempo changes and complex drum patterns. I heard lead guitar that was fast and tinged with wah-wah without being drenched in it, like you said, Matt. And I heard a gruff bark of a voice that was warning us of the terrible possibility of nuclear war and what it means for the planet. See your mother put to death, see your mother die. That shit made a huge impression on 18-year-old Aaron. And this is easily one of Metallica's greatest songs. I still get a charge when I hear it. The next track is the title track and Justice for All, written by James Hetfield, Lars Ulrich, and Kirk Hammett. Tony, lead us off. I am instantly, the music has these charms to transport you to a place in time. We all know this. And this one transports me to when my two sons were about four and five. And um, we purchased this song on the rock band. And I taught my boys about long, slow introductions, odd time signatures, I taught my son how to play ahead of the beat like Lars used to do back when he used to practice and you could hear it. <laughs> the introduction is cool because it's got this descending lick and then some blues fills being played on top there by Kurt. As always, they can't play clean for very long before they have to launch into something driving. And they did. Uh, this is a, this is an excellent song. It doesn't follow the standard Verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus. I think this one actually had four verses 
And let's see, there's some high points in there. I like the, uh, I like that pentatonic riff. They repeated a few times. Um, just good phrasing on this song. Good, good songwriting. Davey. So like their previous two albums before, they make the second song be the title track for the album. The song starts with clean and heavy guitars alternating for quite a while. Then Ulrich's drums ape the guitars into even more badass riffs from both Hetfield and Hammett. The main riff has Lars Ulrich maintaining a tom groove before the verses. I like the ascending passages that occur during the pre-chorus and later appear in the solo. Speaking of the solo, Kirk gives another masterful guitar clinic, mixing in melodic and shredding along with the descending passages that I mentioned before. After the solo, the band changes the tempo while building back up for the final verse and chorus, with the last chorus revisiting in the intro guitar mini, and then giving the song a proper ending with chords. I'm still really digging Hetfield barking out of his vocals, with this time the song is about false justice. Now, this song is one of the problems I have, uh, like Aaron mentioned before, the production. There are times where Lars' bass pedals, not just the drums being very sterile and dry, but I feel the bass pedals are a bit too boosted, and they kind of feel like they're going to like blow out of your ears whenever you have it on at full volume. And there's a noise going on, in the, particularly during the post-solo breakdown, right before it goes back into the verse. Those appear throughout this album, and they get a bit annoying occasionally. But I'm happy that they don't overpower the music, and it doesn't take me out of these songs. I read from songfacts.com that it showed an interview statement from Kirk Hammett saying that one of the members say they never play this song again live due to how complex the songs were and it was difficult to reproduce the sound during that tour, which this may have something to do more or less with Metallica going for more simplistic riffs during the Black Album, but that's just what they that's just what songfacts.com say and I guess more or less I guess that makes sense. It wasn't until June 28th of 2007 when the song was back in the set list. Footage from the Seattle 1989 show at the end of the song, I don't know if you got, I'm sure you guys have seen this, but it has the uh, statue of Lady Justice from the album cover and the set coming apart. That is a complete showstopper right there. So we got two heavy hitters in a row. For nearly 10 minutes, the title track is Absolute Epic Aces. Nick. Okay, so the song starts with a clean guitar intro that soon gets um, some heavy distorted guitars and drums, letting us know that this isn't going to be a ballad. Um, we then get a series of short, sharp riffs, though one, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, uh, which is fantastic, into the descending riff that takes into the, um, the main start of the song. Um, I think this intro is killer and really builds the anticipation for the rest of the song. Um, we then get some long held chords. Well, Lars sets up the next riff with some some nice heavy tom work. Um, now, to me, I agree with what you're saying, um, Aaron, overall about the uh, the drum sound. But in this bit, the um, the toms sound really sound really good on on headphones. I, I thought there's a lot of air in them, which you know is complete contrast to the, the like the super tight snare and um, bass drum that's all over the album. The guitars then take up the riff and play it through a few times with this kind of slightly jarring time signature to it. Um, at this point, it's two minutes ten into the song, um, and we get the, the verse. Um, James sounds pissed off, and his vocals are strong as they are throughout the album. Um, I love the end of the pre-chorus, um, if you can call it that, with the the descending guitar hook, which Tony mentioned uh, in the between. The I can't believe the price that you pay is brilliant, real good hook. The chorus again is good, uh, built to be sung and shouted by by a crowd. Then we go through that the whole cycle again, the verse, pre-chorus, chorus. chorus. 
yeah, I've put here that, that Lars drums again are really prominent throughout the song and um, and a real part of the sound of the album. Um, and it's no surprise to hear that he was heavily involved in the mixing and as everyone said, much to the detriment of Jason's bass. So at this point, we kind of get halfway through the the song. Uh, we do that one, one, two, one, two, three bit again, and then we're into the solo again. For, to me, this is kind of a two part of the first half, fairly subdued. Uh, just providing a melody over the music below. And then again, halfway through, Kurt lets rip, stomps on his trusty wah-wah pedal and goes through his uh, patented bag of tricks. Uh, it's another good solo for me and ends with another huge dive bomb taking us back into the uh, the verse riff. It starts to slow down and we're taken back to the intro, um, but this time played with the distorted guitars. Again, we get the big toms and into the final verse. I know this song um, has had some grief over the years, I think, for being being too long. And um, But to me, the length is never an issue if the song keeps you engaged. I'd say that perhaps they could trim the middle section after the solo a touch, but for me, I've always liked this track. It was always a favourite um, when we were younger and we were in the pubs uh, playing pool or something like that, because uh, if it was on the jukebox, you stick it on and it's the best value. You, know, you get 10 minutes um, of fantastic music and uh, it always pisses off everyone else who wasn't into this kind of music. So, yeah, it was great. <laughs> Matt? Well, everyone has said it so far and peer pressure is real. Nice, clean guitars start the song off and that's something that they did also on the previous album, Pastor of Muppets, I mean, Master of Puppets. It's the adage where the soft bits make the harder bits feel harder. Are we doing phrasing? No? Okay. <laughs> it's a surprise when the distorted guitars kick in because it's in the middle of the passage. Lady Justice is supposed to be blind, and she is, but only because of the dollar bills getting thrown in her face. Rich and powerful people get to fuck with the system as much as they want, and nobody cares because they've paid off the judges and the media. The lawyers are seeking no truth. Winning is all, and they're gang-raping Lady Justice in the alley behind the courthouse. Where am I? Oh, yeah. Listening to this song, something seems to be missing, but I can't quite put my finger on it. Like Davey said, this continues the Metallica pattern of their previous two albums, Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets. They've got a lengthy title track as the second track after a ripping opener. It's got multiple sections, rhythmic and tempo shifts, cool guitar mini figures, and it's got riffs galore with that scooped mids guitar tone that they don't feel awkward stitched together, which is basically how they create these songs. The bass is nearly undetectable, fuck you, Jason. But Lars is a standout on this, and I've heard things like he had to record his parts piecemeal and they had to assemble the pieces together to create the track. I don't know. I don't care. I'm pretty much a Lars defender, especially on the early stuff, and the creativity he shows on this track is fucking impressive. I also dig what Kirk is doing. Even though the Wawa shows up here, it's employed much more tastefully than he would later do, and he could shred his ass off way back when. James is really snarling the vocals, though I'm noticing more of the vocal quirks that begin to annoy the fuck out of me in later years. And the lyrics are about the corrupt American justice system and how the wealthy can exploit the system to the detriment of the lower classes. Time and again, we witness this to the present day. You were saying this, Matt. So the subject is still completely valid. This phenomenal track is 9 minutes and 46 seconds, but it doesn't feel like it to me. And the band said that after playing the song live that it was too much, too complex, and they just wanted to simplify things for the next record, and boy did they ever, the fuckheads. So let's flip the imaginary record over and begin disc 1, side 2, with Eye of the Beholder, written by James Hetfield, Lars Ulrich, and Kirk Hammett. Doesn't matter what you see, or in doing what you read, you can do it your own way. If it's done, it's how I say. 
Davey, lead us off. So we got the second single. We fade in on mid-tempo galloping riffs, where the verse riff has a slight change in the gallops. Hetfield's voice is processed uh, to a degree as he delivers the verses. It's got some sort of effect on it whenever he delivers those verses. The pre-chorus has a change in tempo and a new riff that comes in, while the chorus returns to the original groove with chords. Hammond doesn't go all out for the solo, but nonetheless, it still fits the song, with one last chorus that has the pre-chorus section coming after it to close out the tune. Like you said, uh, Aaron, Hetfield starts doing those quirks, uh, mannerisms like the like during the line, independence, liberty, freedom, the choice is made for you, my friend. Ah! Now, I'll give him credit. While I mentioned earlier that those mannerisms start to become annoying in later years, I honestly don't find them that annoying during this album, so I can live with them here. The name of the song is never mentioned, but it's taken from the phrase, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. In the context of this song, Hetfield's lyrics are how America may have been guaranteed the First Amendment, which is free speech. However, America isn't truly free, which is due to the line, you could do it your own way if it's done just how I say. Lars Ulrich has gone on record stating that he doesn't care for the song. Well, I disagree with you, Lars. So far, three for three, boys. Nick? Okay, so for ages, I didn't even know the name of this song. It was always just a fast walking song to me. <laughs> if ever uh, this comes on, on my headphones when I'm out walking somewhere, I just click into the rhythm of that opening riff. I just love how it chugs along on one note with a simple drum beat and you can't help walking fast and kind of nodding your head in time. It has another of those really catchy uh, descending guitar licks that takes you into the start of the verse. I think they, they do that kind of thing really well. Uh, the verse stays at the same chugging tempo, but this changes slightly in the chorus which makes it look a bit odd when you're walking because um, then you've got to change your step to fit in with a new beat and you can look a bit weird. So we run through a verse, pre-chorus, chorus cycle a couple of times before we get to the guitar solo. Um, there's a relatively long ascending build-up um, leading to a guitar mini section before we get into the solo proper. It's fairly short with lots more whammy action and it's fairly standard, I would say, although that doesn't mean it's bad. Um, it fits the song and leads straight back into a final verse, pre-chorus, chorus, and it ends nicely with a final run through the pre-chorus and into another solid close. This sounds familiar. All going well so far. Three out of three for me. Matt. Something seems to be missing here. Yeah, it's the song fading up at the beginning. We haven't had a hard start yet. It's either been a fade up or nice and soft at the beginning. Honestly, I'd prefer a smack in the face here to switch it up. But guess what? I'm not a producer. I'm not in a band. I'm just an overweight, hairy, white dude in his basement talking records. <laughs> Honestly, I think this song is more appropriate today than when it was written. Do you see what I see? Truth is an offense. Do you feel what I feel? Bittering distress. Truths to you are lies to me. My God, these lyrics couldn't be more on the nose than a zit on picture day. <laughs> Tony. You're right, Matt. Poignant for now. Themes, again, you know, what was affecting me and our generation three decades ago is coming around back around. And it's, and it's in the music and media. Um, but this song... I, the holder never did it for me, unfortunately. I mean, it's, it's, it's to me, it sounds like three other songs on this album that could have been easily substituted any for each other at any given point, and it wouldn't have made much difference. It's about the most vanilla track on side A so far. And uh, yeah, just never had much for this, uh, this song. 
I love the chugging main riff, and you can hear the faint presence of the bass on this, which it desperately needs more of. Fuck you, Jason. Since this has a slower tempo and is meant to be a heavy grinder of a song. The pre-chorus has an insistent riff, and then the song has a time signature switch up from 4-4 to 12-8 in the chorus with a new riff pattern, and I really dig it. And I dig the way James sings over the chorus, using the last word of each line to begin the next one. It's a cool trick. The guitar monies are still present and work so well. I wish this band did more of this. It used to be a sonic hallmark of Metallica. The lyrics are about the supposed American freedom of speech, an illusion which in reality is limited by the government and people in positions of power. You can say what you want as long as it's what they want you to say. I've always loved this track, and it was the second single from the album, though, like DLS said, Lars said that he wasn't a fan of it, and the time signature changes felt forced to him. You're wrong, Lars. The following track is One, written by James Hetfield and Lars Ulrich. Nick, you like this one? Yes, I do. Yeah. So this is probably the um, the song that first made me really kind of listen to Metallica properly. So I guess it does hold a special place for me. Yeah, it starts with the sounds of, uh, of battle. Um, it's another kind of slow fading, I guess. But then you get into this distinctive intro, which played um, the clean intro, um, which is uh, it's played on a strap. But actually, having watched the video, it's an ESP version of a strap. Uh, but I love that sound anyway. The solo in the intro is is tasteful and melodic and it leads us gently into the song um Lars's drums come in in quite a kind of martial style and I always think of him in the video um, I don't know if you remember he's always mouthing something um some kind of nonsense while James is singing and that always pops into my head um and speaking of the video actually it used to really freak me out um the whole idea of being trapped inside your mind with no one knowing what uh, that your brain is still working it's like the ultimate in claustrophobia don't even like to think about it it's uh, horrific um but yeah song has a couple of gentle verses that lead into the heavy um, hold my breath as i wish for death bit and the dynamics between the two sections is really effective um, after the second chorus we get another short clean solo before another version of the heavy chorus the guitar monies take over after this building tension along with the drums which start to get into the machine gun rhythm that lets us know we're getting to the final vocal section Everything about this section is staccato, from the drums and guitars to James's vocal delivery, mimicking the machine gun fire of war. The lyrics really focus on the horror of what the protagonist is going through, and this section is really effective. As James sings, um, left me with life in hell, the tempo kicks into double time and really starts to move. We have a couple of run-throughs of this section, and then some more machine gun snares takes into the solo, which is one of my favourites. Um, it starts with some tapping, and then we get a glorious held high note before Kurt. Uh, really starts to shred uh, there's more of his descending licks and then we get a great staccato bit with some nice bluesy bends where he's really digging in uh, this leads us out of the solo into an extended instrumental outro with more great riffing and some nice guitar money again all leading us to the final machine gun burst on all instruments and then we're out it's a metallica classic and for good reason it's a great song fbvg 
this is probably the creepiest song that I know. And I honestly didn't like it for years because a radio station in my city played the hell out of this song. I spent the better part of a decade suffering earburn on one Bohemian Rhapsody and most of the entire Van Halen catalog. <laughs> it's one reason why I don't listen to terrestrial radio anymore. Now, I have not read the book or seen the movie Johnny Got His Gun that inspired the song, but I did read a passage that inspired the song title while listening to this intro, and holy crap, that gave me goosebumps. So the protagonist is talking about the fact that with a one in a million chance, there's always that one, which is where the title comes from. The first two verses, I can feel part despair, part anger of the protagonist. Now, I don't think James was known for his singing at this time, but listening on headphones, I can hear a little bit of feeling in that vocal delivery. After the solo, the song turns full on pissed off, much like Sanitarium from the previous album. I remember seeing this video on MTV, even in the early 90s, they were doing this on heavy rotation. And the part of the video where that general walks out of the room, he shuts off the lights, closes the door and the curtains. Essentially, this guy is out of sight, out of mind, and it just gives me a lonely feeling. I know how much I can get into my own head. I can't imagine going through something this traumatic and then being left only in my own head. I'd be feeling anger and despair as well. I'm sure in the last few minutes there were plenty of people holding their breath as they wish for death as well. Tony. Well, you just stole my superpower, Matt. Earburn is the is all I can think of when I when I hear this song. I don't I don't have much desire to go back and revisit it. I often skip it. But you can't take away from the songwriting skill that went into this. And um, you know, back then Kirk was was still, I don't know if he was trying to shake the fact that he was uh, one of Satriani's students, star students, and just trying to develop his own persona. But he's he still he still he could still shred in a unique way. But I don't have much to say about one man. They shouldn't have done that video. They promised it was only going to be a one-time thing. You know, they they swore. <laughs> Davey, what's this? <laughs> you should know, Bob Munch, this is Metallica. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, Beavis and Butthead. Never gets old, right? As I said at the top of this podcast, this was the song that got me exposed to Metallica during my Guitar Hero days. Like Fade to Black on Ride the Lightning and Welcome Home Sanitarium my Master of Puppets, this continues another Metallica tradition of the ballad as the fourth track on their albums. Same with the Unforgiven on the Black album. This is the third single from the album. We get with, I think it's James screaming with military sounds going on in the background. Then a helicopter propeller is coming down as well. Then we get quiet guitars while Kirk plays a couple solos before the main riff kicks in. The music stays this way while James sings rather softly but the song gets heavy during the chorus. Then after the second chorus, Kirk launches to another solo. While transitioning back to another chorus, the song continues to build. And then... The intensity of the machine gun riff is at full force. While Lars apes the riffs, and James is completely selling the person in the story in terms of how that person is feeling. Then Kirk Hammett launches into one of his most frenetic solos ever, tapping triads and shredding galore. 
the song carries the machine gun riffs to the end. This song is based on the 1939 novel Johnny Got His Gun by Dalton Trumbo. I think that's how you pronounce it. Which the lyrics are about a World War I soldier who was hit by a mortar shell and he wakes up from a coma and struggling with PTSD flashbacks about the war. This was the first music video that Metallica ever did since they stayed away from MTV and they would do things on their own terms. Metallica also played the song in the 1989 Grammy Awards. That's their first appearance in the mainstream anyway. However, this was also known where Metallica lost the Grammy for best hard rock and metal performance to Jethro Tull. Huh, no justice there, right? Despite all that, on some days, this might be my favorite Metallica song since it's the one that brought me to them. <laughs> I've always loved this song. One is the one for me. Just a true classic. This is the song that turned me on to Metallica. It's the quote-unquote ballad as the fourth track of the record, again, following the Metallica pattern. You just said that, Davey. And this one starts with the battle noises and then clean guitar arpeggios. And once more, the faint bass can be heard during the quiet sections, including the sweet acoustic guitar figures, which I really love. The lyrics are inspired by the 1939 novel Johnny Got His Gun by Dalton Trumbo, as well as the 1971 film adaptation that was directed by Trumbo also. James sings the verses with growing despair, drawing the conclusion that he wishes to die rather than live like this, injured and trapped inside of his own body, a prisoner inside himself. After two verses, we get an awesome guitar money section in three-quarter time, and as it goes, you hear the kick drum go, it's ominous, and in my mind, I imagine the enemy approaching our boy. Then the guitarist join in with a kick drum and it slams your fucking skull. Now we're in 2-4 time. Dun, 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 like a march. And now James roars out the vocals. Now the anger comes out. Our boy tells us exactly what's happened. Landmine has taken my sight, taken my speech, taken my hearing, taken my arms, taken my legs, taken my soul, left me with life in hell. And then the music goes off. The tempo increases. The riffs are heavy as fuck. I imagine our soldier reliving the battle in his mind with the drums imitating gunfire. Kirk is soloing chaotically. The bass disappears again. Fuck you, Jason. And it just maintains this high level of tension through a dual harmonized solo between James and Kirk. And it does not let up until the last salvo and then blam, it's over. Our boy stepped on the landmine and that's it. That's how I hear it in my head. It's a remarkable song. The music and lyrics feed off of each other. I've heard this track more than any other Metallica song, and it still remains as my all-time favorite Metallica song. This was the third single, and as we said, this was the band's first music video featuring the band performing the song in a warehouse interspersed with clips from the Johnny Got His Gun film that the band ended up buying the rights to to avoid financial hassles. So let's switch out our imaginary records and start off disc two, side three, with The Shortest Straw, written by James Hetfield and Lars Ulrich. What do you say? 
The Shortest Straw, not about Cliff Burton. It's about a man with a controversial political opinion that's blacklisted and his name is run through the mud. Thank God that doesn't happen anymore. (laughs) I read that this song is about McCarthyism and the Red Scare of the 1950s. Here's a couple of fun facts. Joseph McCarthy was from my hometown, Appleton, Wisconsin. And nowadays, if you accuse a person of being a communist, they'd either say damn straight or I prefer the term progressive. Also born in Wisconsin, that term. At any rate, there's heavy kick drum on this track, and I love that double bass drum, and that is about the only positive thing I'll say about Lars Ulrich today. That really gives you that fast, panicked heartbeat that you get when you're unfairly targeted. Honestly, I think this song today would be called Facebook Jail. Facebook Jail! Challenge all your memes, Zuckerberg! (laughs) Chasing out face news, Facebook Jail! You're gone 30 days! (laughs) Tony. So at this point, I'm finally engaged with this album again. This is the point where I'm like, okay, I'll probably finish this out because this is this is a damn good song. Um, well, it starts again with the the bursts, kind of like Injustice for All does once it once the beat kicks in, and then with the little Devil's Note slide riff. <laughs> It's got a hook to it, uh, and there's this one little, one little part, uh, and it's it's it always jumps out at me. It's just a little drum fill in the stanza right after the first chorus. Lars does this little China splash real quick during the down bow bow, and he only does it once. That's the kind of stuff that you know Danny Carey has created a. a fucking career out of but Lars only did that one time throughout the whole song he never repeated it because it was clever because he used to be a damn good drummer Uh, but I digress Uh, Shortest Straw probably my favorite song on the album one of my favorite Metallica songs bar none DLS Shortest Straw we get some start and stop chords with Ulrich's drums right along with them Then it just leaves the guitars for a bit and into the verses with badass palm-muted choppy riffs, which I've always dug a lot. James just delivers the attitude of the song as only he could in his younger years. The lyrics being about the blacklisting of American politicians with ties to communism during the Red Scare of the 1950s. I'm just going to pick up with what Matt said. I also read that the title of The Shortest Straw was a reference to the death of the late great Cliff Burton, where he was sleeping on a bunk by pulling the shortest straw in a game of chance in the band's touring bus during the tour for Master of Puppets in Sweden when the bus flipped on its side on a road. Now, I agree with Matt. I don't think it's about Cliff Burton, but still, that's just what I read. I initially thought that this was a bit of a joke as to how Metallica treated Jason Newstead, since they were always giving him a tough time after he replaced Cliff. Like I thought maybe the band were pulling straws and James told Jason the sort of straw has been pulled for you wah, or something along those lines. I'm just pulling stuff out of my out of myself for the time being. I don't know. Back to the song. The new riffs that transition from the verse to the chorus until Kirk's solo, which again, his solo so far have been on point like a number two pencil. He plays another mini solo after James sings another chorus, then back for one last verse and chorus, closing the door on more chords. Another song from this album that I've always loved, and this is how you begin the second half of the album, right here, folks. Nick. Okay, so 
it starts with um, another stop-start riff, which immediately grabs your attention. Um, it leads into a, a high-tempo chugging riff, um, and once this song gets going, it really doesn't let up. Um, the chorus slows things down very slightly, but the whole song is pretty relentless. Again, the structure is, um, again, fairly conventional, the, the verse, pre-chorus, chorus, and again, that chorus is always going to be a winner with a live crowd. Again, the guitar solo is similar in structure, um, with an initial part playing a melody in keeping with the song, and the drums going at warp speed before again Kirk lets loose with all his tricks, the dive bombs, pinch harmonics, whammy bar action, fast descending chromatic lines. The end of the solo goes back to the melody of the start of it before we get back into another chorus. Kirk comes back again then for another few bars and he is wah-wah up to the max. Uh, we're then back into a final cycle through the verse chorus before another good tight ending. It's another classic and it's been all good so far for me. I dig the start and stop riffs, and again, the drum patterns Lars is playing are complex and interesting, including some double bass flourishes. I just wish the drums sounded better, and once more, the bass is non-existent. Fuck you, Jason. This is also structured with different sections, with different crunchy riffs and different rhythms. They keep you on your toes. You don't know exactly where they're going next. I dig Kirk's solo. He starts with a repeated melodic phrase over an ascending chord progression. Then he does some weird note choices and whammy bar shit as the music descends, and he finishes up with note flurious runs as the progression ascends again. You guys cover the lyrics. I don't need to go into that. This track is a favorite of Lars, and it's definitely a winner for me. The next track is Harvester of Sorrow, written by James Hetfield and Lars Ulrich. Tony, hit us. I don't have a clever title for the song I think sucks the most on the album, but this is it. I don't like this song. Uh, Tony's turd or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> Davey. Sorry, Tony. <laughs> we got the first single of the album. The guitars and drums take us in instantly. Then the music quiets down for a bit with Ulrich's cymbal washes. Then a new riff pattern leads us to the verses, and yet another new riff goes into the choruses. Hetfield's lyrics are about a man who descends into madness and takes out his anger on his family. By the end of the song, his sanity snaps and murders them. Now, like I said before, I don't think Hammett's solo is one of his best, but it fits as I think James' rhythm playing is what helps maintain the momentum. What I really love is the post-solo breakdown section. That's actually one of my favorite parts of the song. Then we get one last verse and an elongated chorus to an abrupt finish. Yes, boys. Can we get some more of this, please? Nick? Okay, I'm probably more with Tony on this one. Um, so, yeah, for me, we come to the first lull on the album. Um, for some reason, I'm never taken to this song. Um, I think it's probably the slower tempo, and it just feels a bit too plodding for my liking. But as I've listened to it more closely over this past week, I've realized that there isn't anything I can put my finger on that I don't actually like. And there's lots of parts of it that I really do like. So it's a bit of a strange one. Um, I think some of the drumming on this is really excellent, particularly in the long introduction where Lars is mixing things up a lot. It's like adding in extra beats here and there and it's got some great fills. 
and the bit from kind of one minute to one minute 20 stands out particularly to me the guy the guitars kind of seem to be working out what they're going to do next they're not really doing much um and the drums take over your interest at this point i really like that section um then things kick into a slow plodding heavy groove and we get into the standard verse pre-chorus chorus structure of the song i think it's probably the chorus that may be the bit that stopped me liking this as much as certainly when i was younger um like the call and response of the harvester of sorrow language of the mad part it just something about that just kind of grated with me and also i've been listening to it um, as i've been listening to it again i feel like this is the song that shows the future direction of the band more than any on any other on this record it's got quite a black album feel to it i think and similar to something like wherever i may roam um, again the irony here is that i actually really like the black album um, and as i wasn't a hardcore metallica fan the direction they took on that album never really bothered me like it did to a lot of other people so all in all, I'd say it's a decent song, but it's not one that I've ever really had any affection for. Um, and generally, I've just been too excited to get to the next song. Matt. Well, Nick, Tony, you guys can go fuck yourself. <laughs> I like this song. Sorry. Every time I've listened to this song with headphones, it was always those crappy 90s headphones that didn't do much or only have in one earbud, not the moderate quality headphones like the ones I have now. But during the opening riff, I hear some wordless vocals like monk chants going on way back in the mix. That shit gave me chills. And I thought, damn, man, that needs to be more up front. So a kid is getting beaten by his old man. He comes home from work, has a few drinks, shoots up, watches Wheel of Fortune. Then it's time to beat the kid. This is how we live in suburbia. The kid's had enough, so he kills his family. I get the old man, okay, but mom and sis, come on, man. Maybe I'm just not a heartless enough piece of shit, but just thinking of that and listening to the song like four times in a row makes me think that maybe I'm not as bad of a father as I think. Yeah, I'm an ass and I'm pretty selfish at times, but I ain't this bad. You know, really paying attention to this song, it's a tough listen for me now that I've really dug into the lyrics. I mean, hell, Harvester of Sorrow, that line alone is poetic as fuck. The intro has some cool, like, pseudo-tribal drumming and that noise, like you were saying, Matt, the in the background. It's almost evil-sounding. And then it turns into a slow stomper that lumbers like a brontosaurus. And if there was any bass on this track, it would be much heavier. Fuck you, Jason. Kirk's solo is brief and kind of aimless, not very inspired to my ears, but the chunky riffs strewn all over this sucker more than make up for it. And whew, these lyrics are dark. There's some debate as to what the song is exactly about, but what I got from it, it's about a guy who had a traumatic childhood, and as he becomes an adult, he descends into madness and murders his family. Anger, misery, you'll suffer unto me. To see into my eyes, you'll find where murder lies. Infanticide. Despite the subject matter, this was the first single from the album. I have no idea why, but I'm all about this track. The following track is The Frayed Ends of Sanity, written by James Hetfield, Lars Ulrich, and Kirk Hammett. Yeah. 
Voodoo child, what do you say? What does the voodoo child say? He says, ah, the intro is the monkey chant from the Wizard of Oz, eh? Oh, wee, oh, oh, wee. But anyway, we get another chugger of a riff that happens to be one of my favorite riffs on the album. As usual, Ulrich's drum fills and Hetfield's vocals are still great. I love the choruses. Then we get bombarded with a new badass riff after new badass riff before Kirk tears it up with his solo. Then, as if those pre-solo riffs weren't enough, we get yet another new riff during the post-solo breakdown. Then, after a third verse and chorus, hear them calling me! <laughs> we hear the main riff go into the breakdown riff where Ulrich's toms and both guitarists ape each other to take us out. I think the lyrics are pretty much self-explanatory just by the title of the song about a person who feels he's paranoid and on the brink of losing his sanity, which I sort of feel like it's a brother song to Harvester of Sorrow, since both songs are about losing one's sanity to a degree. Not only is this one of my favorite songs on the album, I think I'll put this on one of my favorite Metallica deep cuts. Man, these guys are keeping me engaged at this point, fellas. Nick? Okay, so spoiler alert here. This is my favorite song on the album and possibly my favorite Metallica song outright. It's the main reason I wanted to come on and do this album uh, on the podcast because uh, I didn't want to be listening to it and basically have no one be as enthusiastic about it as I am. <laughs> but having said all that, as uh, as Davies just said, I have to confess that I've never been a huge fan of the OEO bit at the beginning. Um, it's always sounded a bit goofy to me, but um, it doesn't last for that long before the drums drop out and the guitars kick into the opening riff. Um, which repeats a few times before the tempo increases and we're into the verse. Again, we follow a standard verse chorus structure uh, with more great precise drumming and riffing, but it's after the second chorus where things really start to take off and I start to get excited. So from 3 minutes 22 to 4.03, they play a fairly repetitive riff that gradually ascends, getting higher and higher, and all the time is building up to something, and it's a masterclass intention building. At this point, when you think you're about to burst, we get another tempo change and a fantastic fast riff that leads us into the guitar solo, which is probably my top 10 all-time solos, not just Metallica. Um, It has all of the usual signature moves from Kirk, but for some reason in this song, it just works better than any other, for me at least. I think partly it has to do with the energy that's built up over the previous minute and a half, but the dive bombs, the tapping, the squealing just hit perfectly. The solo has a beginning, a middle and end, and it tells a story of its own. The massive dive bomb at 4 minutes 30 is just awesome, and followed by that screeching high note that just puts a massive smile on my face. And again, the ascending melody that he plays builds the tension again, leading to a final flurry of high notes and bends before he's out, and we're back into the pre-solo riff. By this time, I'm totally pumped. I always think of this as my running song, so I've got a walking song, and now this is a running song. Um, Not that I'm a big runner, but... um, this is the one for me. So the initial tempo has me running at quite a decent pace, but when it gets to that fast bit, fast, sorry, I'm, Eng- I'm English, but I don't say fast, I say fast, fast part around the solo. Um, I just have to speed up uh, to quite a quick pace for me. I have to time it where I put it in the run, because once that bit's finished, I'm absolutely knackered. Um, so after the solo, we gradually return to the original tempo for a final verse chorus, and then it kicks back up again for a final high-speed burst at the end after James's excellent ah ha Um, So as I've said, I've always loved this track and it has an energy and excitement in the middle section that just blows me away. The only other song I can think that has a comparable part to this is is probably Wasted Years by Iron Maiden, which also has that amazing kind of high energy build up uh, before the the perfect guitar solo. So yeah, it's an absolute winner for me and I, I could listen to this all day. Matt. 
Oh, we, oh, oh. <laughs> Wizard of Oz. Yeah, seems a little ridiculous to me, but at least it's a bit of levity. I feel like this could almost be my theme song. I've fallen prey to failure, growing conspiracy. Everyone's after me. Loss of interest, question, wonder. Old habits reappear, fighting the fear of fear. A dude is losing his mind with paranoia, and God, I know what that's like. I am an advocate of taking care of your mental health if you need it. Trust me, there are people out there who care, but the hardest part is realizing that people are out there that care. The truest thing I ever read is that depression is when you care about nothing, anxiety is when you care about everything, and having both is hell. Add in a touch of ADHD and simultaneously superiority and inferiority complexes, and you are the frayed ends of sanity. Coupled with the previous song, this half of the album is getting to be some heavy lifting for me. Tony. <laughs> I like how Matt's problems takes the focus off of my problems. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> um, you are welcome. <laughs> Yeah, you're, you know, yes, the the themes that are running through this B-side are much more human problems, human level type existence issues, um, kind of stuff that my wife likes to watch on um, true, t true crime TV, go into the minds of, of maniacs and killers. Um, insanity is a, is something that, yeah, I get that too. Yeah, I've been to the to the brink of quite a few times. It's left its mark on me. Have these guys been there? One of them had, because those lyrics sure uh, sure resonate. Anyway, um, barring the cheesy intro, it, it is a riffalicious song. Kurt again showing out well on this on this cut. I'm still ignoring Newstead's growls and barks and yeah. It's going from being something that's peppered in to something that's becoming more and more uh, just the way he ends a, a phrase. So not my favorite song, but in my opinion, the album's already peaked. After our intro trip to The Wizard of Oz, I was going to do it, but I can't follow the fat bearded vinyl guy. The main riff comes in palm muted and choppy, and I can barely hear the bass lurking under there, but as usual, it's fuck you, Jason. Ah, I'm getting sick of saying that. The pre-chorus has some double kick drum action, and the chorus goes for long, drawn-out chords. As is the case for most of this record, what Lars is doing is complex and impressive, and I love his fills in particular on this song. The band introduces some nice new riffs in the lengthy instrumental sections, and Kirk's solo is serviceable, if not spectacular, featuring tapping, note-flurious runs, dive bombs, and eventually some of that wah-wah that we all know him for. It's the second song in a row about madness, except this one is about a paranoid schizophrenic who's nearly paralyzed by fear, and his struggle is more internal instead of taking it out externally. This is a quirky tune that I've always dug, and the band always refused to play in full. They would tease pieces of it over the years until they finally wheeled out the whole song in Helsinki, Finland on May 28, 2014. So let's flip the imaginary record over to Disc 2, Side 4, and the penultimate track, To Live Is To Die, written by James Hetfield, Lars Ulrich, and Cliff Burton. What a mad life. are the pale deaths, which men miscall their lives. All 
this I cannot bear to witness any longer. I cannot the kingdom of salvation take me home. Nick, what do you say? Okay, so I must confess that for whatever reason, I've never really got into this song. I think I was probably always spent after the Freight Into Sanity, so I never really gave this too much time. To me, it always felt like a collection of, um, of different riffs that don't really go anywhere. Um, it's really long too, but like I've said, I love a long song if I feel there's a point to it. I hadn't realised actually um, until prepping for this that the, the song is based on a, a few riffs that Cliff uh, was working on before he died. So now I understand why they put it on here and feel a bit bad for not appreciating for what it is. Uh, but to me, it will never be a favourite. That's not to say it's bad, uh, but it just doesn't grab me like um, most of the others do. I do like that slow section from about five minutes where it all goes a bit um, fade to black or unforgiven, that kind of feel to it, um, which is, is really nice. But as I said, it's just a bit kind of pity for me. It doesn't really hang together as a, as a whole song. So I'm going to sit back now and prepare to get battered by you guys. Matt, you're going to batter Nick? Well, as we learned from the previous song, all of my insanity is internal and I don't do anything externally. <laughs> so no, I won't. <laughs> mostly instrumental song except for a spoken word part that in my opinion is way too far back in the mix it's made up of a bunch of unused cliff burton stuff i like the haunting guitars at the start and at the end i also like the slow plotting tempo in spots it's a very much like a funeral dirge but the rhythm and the feel they also speed up at times as if to say yeah we lost our friend but we're gonna keep going and keep rocking out the song's ending is abrupt, just like Cliff's. Rest in peace, my man. Tony. This song gave us a, a glimpse into the lyrical side of Cliff, and it did it in a uh, Chris Cornell-like suicide, uh, Kurt Cobain all apologies kind of way, you know, posthumously kind of a suicide note. The way he, all these things I can no longer Stead, I can't remember, I can't remember. Uh, anyway, he, he said it best. But it is a very uh, incongruent song musically. The uh, the slow, chugging instrumental was uh, required as a prerequisite. Like Orion, like Call of Cthulhu, it had to be on every album. So I guess this was, this was the, uh, this filled the space for that. Not a bad song, no, but again about four or five different songs mishmashed, my humble opinion. Davey. Okay, we have yet another Metallica tradition that goes back to their previous albums, Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets, where we have the sole instrumental track near the end of the album. We start with some cool acoustic guitars that go on for almost a minute, then the heavy guitars, electric guitars, and drums slowly fade in. While the song is not in a thrash beat, it's still heavy as an anvil. Just after three minutes, we get Kirk Hammett playing the first solo that starts with him using the kill switch effect on his guitar. Kirk Hammett stated in a 1989 Guitar Player magazine interview that this was the last solo that was recorded for the album at 5 o'clock in the morning, hours before they left for the Monsters of Rock tour. So he played what was at the top of his head to give the appropriate scales for the chord changes. Then we get right before the five-minute mark, the song goes quiet, leaving just the isolated clean guitar and the drums are a bit subdued. 
Then right before the six-minute mark, James Hetfield plays the second solo, which is more melodic, and both solos by Hammond and Hetfield I think are well done. Nothing too over the top, but still, I think they fit for what's going on here. Then we get, oh, uh, did I say this was an instrumental? Whoopsie daisies, I'm sorry, I lied. At seven and a half minutes, we have a spoken word section done by Hetfield, which is Cliff Burton's credit for the album. That states, when a man lies, he murders some part of the world. These are the pale deaths which men miscall their lives. All this I cannot bear to witness any longer. Cannot the kingdom of salvation take me home? This was a poem that Cliff Burton wrote prior to his death. The line, these are the pale deaths which men miscall their lives, comes from Lord Fowl's Bane, book one of the series, The Chronicles of Thomas Covenant, the Unbeliever, by Stephen R. Donaldson. The line, cannot the kingdom of salvation take me home, is written on Cliff Burton's memorial stone. But the spoken word section wasn't Burton's only credit. The bass lines were a medley of unused recordings that Burton performed before he passed. Speaking of Cliff Burton, James Hetfield stated this track was Metallica's homage to Cliff without going over the top. They were just realizing how great they were for the time they spent with him. I think it's a lovely tribute to the late, great Cliff Burton. Nothing flashy here, just getting the job done and they succeeded. Rest in peace, Cliff Burton. The song returns to the original groove until it fades out on power chords where the acoustic guitars come back that goes straight into the following final track. But I'm going to be honest, ugh, this hurts. This was a tough choice to make for this album. If I must pick a least favorite, it's this one. It's not David's ineffective song selection, blah. But hey, I refuse to take it off the album because I still love it. What do you want from me? It fades in on a classically inspired acoustic guitar figure, and then it goes into a heavy slog of a number that apparently was constructed from bass parts that Cliff Burton recorded but were never used. I really like the middle sections where it slows down even more, and we hear volume swells that kind of sound like strings. And then we barely hear James recite a four-line spoken word piece that Cliff apparently liked, with the first two lines coming from German poet Paul Gerhardt, and the last two lines coming from Cliff himself. It's dopey as fuck. I don't like it. Yeah, there's some Kirk Hammett solos and guitar mini passages and a Hetfield solo, but if I gotta be honest, of all the Metallica instrumentals ever released, this is my least favorite by a long shot. It's 9 minutes and 48 seconds long, and it feels like it. It's mostly based on bass parts, and you can't even hear the fucking bass. Major fuck you, Jason. And this is the only track on the record I can take or leave. I'm with you, Nick. So it's Aaron's Stinky Stinker. The acoustic guitar figure fades back in and abruptly segues into the final track. And that final track is Dyer's Eve. Written by James Hetfield, Lars Ulrich, and Kirk Hammett. How about this last one, FBVG? This is Metallica at their best, in my opinion. Loud, fast, aggressive, angry. Fuck you, mom and dad. 
You kept me in a cave so I didn't even know what the world was until dad bailed and mom died and I was thrown into the deep end of life after spending 16 years on the splash pad. It's one of those instances where music is therapeutic. James is getting out all that anger, all that frustration, and in a way giving all those kids with the same anger and frustration an outlet. Innocence torn from me without your shelter. This whole second half of the album is weighty and, for me, emotionally draining. Tony. Again, agreed. By the time I get to this song, I'm soul tired. I I feel like I can't process any more catharsis at this point. And I usually check out because this song is, it reminds me the way Slayer ended South of Heaven with Spill the Blood. A very uncomfortable note. Um, It always stuck with me. And, and made me feel uncomfortable and scared. And I felt those children. And I felt like some abused child. Like I said, I usually skip this one. But again, this, uh, this album had peaked long before it got this far. DLS. Immediately right after To Live Is To Die, we go into this. Metallica have closed out their albums with the fastest songs. Yet another Metallica tradition. And this is exactly what we're going to get. The guitars and drums ape each other, then it drops down for a couple seconds, and then the band are going to town on their instruments like a double-decker bus, and they're playing like this is the last song they're ever going to play, and they're all going for it. Putting the pedal to the metal. Quite literally, I might add. Lars Ulrich is showing his drum kit, who's boss, putting serious intensity in his double bass along with the thrashing skank beat in the verses. Both guitarists are playing tremolo-picked palm-muted chord riffs at breakneck speed, and then the beat slows down for the chorus. The intro riff comes back before Kirk Hammack does his thing for the solo one last time, throwing in more tapping triads for good measure. Again, I'm loving the post-solo breakdown riffs, and this one is no exception. I'm telling you, there's some of my favorite moments throughout this whole album. The lyrics of this song are very personal to James Hetfield, which is about his difficult upbringing with his family, like Matt said, when his father walked down on the family and his mother's death from cancer, which you guys talked about before. Hetfield's anger towards his family is in here. He blamed his parents for all the alienating that he had to deal with. Hetfield also added that this song was about being in a cocoon. Now that he's out on his own, he really has a tough time coping with the struggles in his life. His father leaving, his mother dying, living on his own, poverty, grief, confrontation. So it's obviously a very serious subject matter for James. After the breakdown section, the intro riff returns to close out the album. I read that the band didn't play this live in its entirety until March 5th, 2004, during their St. Anger tour. I assume it has to do with the double bass being pretty tough to play, especially for Lars, because all that work he's putting into that is insane. It must have been pretty tough for him. Maybe that's one of the reasons why they didn't play it live so much. But like I said, with the Freight Ads Insanity, not only is this another favorite track of mine from this album, but another one of my favorite Metallica deep cuts. This is how you go out with a big bang. Nick. Okay, so the final song brings the energy, and it's a high-tempo thrasher where James really lets rip at his parents for his upbringing. He's not happy, and it really comes through on this. He manages to sound genuinely angry and hurt and not whiny like a lot of uh, poor teenager I hate my parents' songs. I can hear other songs in here too. I don't know if anyone's ever felt this, but the, the last line of the verse, um, the same thing I've always heard from you, Kind of reminds me of um, something about Foo Fighters. It's probably Everlong. 
And then there's the innocence torn from me without your shelter bit also sounds familiar. And I can't quite put my finger on it, but I feel it might be something like an early Queen song or something, but it hasn't kind of come to me yet. But um, So we get a couple of verses, then another Paint by Numbers Kirk solo, which is nevertheless pretty cool. Uh, we then get a bridge section, which is um, interesting lyrically. Most of the song, James is raging at his parents. He's full of spite and anger. And but this section shows the the kind of hurt, vulnerable side. The I'm in hell without you, cannot cope without you too. I think it's really effective at showing the trauma that a child can go through. So it's not just anger. There's also that 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 pain as well. Um, so overall, it's a great way to finish the album, I think. Um, and even at five minutes thirteen seconds, it still feels like a short, sharp shock to close with. Holy shit, the band goes out on what just might be the fastest song they ever recorded. The guitarists sound like they're shot out of a cannon into a wind tunnel, and Lars is barely holding this thing together. The drums race along with super fast fills as well as stop and starting on a dime. Once more, the bass is just about non-existent. One more time. Everybody all together now. Fuck you, Jason Newstead. Fuck you, Jason Newstead. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Fuck you. And Kirk gives us one more ripping solo, and this time the Wawa's slather all over this fucker. You can't miss it. But I'm willing to overlook it this time as I'm caught up in the thrilling rush of this track. Whoo! James Heffy was pissed off at his parents. You guys covered the lyrics really well, so I don't need to go into that. But James's voice is full of rage and bitterness. And for me, this is just a perfect, ferocious album closer. Now that the track-by-track track is completed, we'll give our final thoughts and album ratings. For your new listeners, the rating is a 0-5 to five system, with 5 being a favorite album of ours, all the way down to a 0, which stepped on a landmine and got blown the fuck up. Matt, what are your final thoughts on And Justice For All? So I wrote and rewrote this review several times. I even told Aaron a few days ago that I didn't know if I could do this today. Now, I know I got sidetracked a couple times in here, but trust me, it is a hell of a lot less than I had in some earlier drafts. I had to keep rewriting because I didn't want to hijack Aaron's podcast with my thoughts of some of the issues of the day. But I guess that means that this album is still relevant. It's still important, and it still says something about our society. That being said, This album is proof for me that Lars Ulrich is one of the biggest assholes out there. Rendering Newstead's bass completely inaudible. Let's not mince words. Let's not sugarcoat it. It's completely inaudible. On his first full-length album was a total dick move. And then later saying his ears were blown out from touring? Asshole, you've had over 30 years to fix it. (laughs) The fact that you haven't speaks to your character or the lack thereof. Metallica is a Hetfield and Ulrich operation, always has been, always will be. I will give And Justice For All a solid four and a half, and I absolutely have an even deeper appreciation for this album after taking the deep dive. Tony. Okay. Justice For All will always, always, always be a beacon in my fundamental thrash years, uh, it, it will always be special to me, you know, cause it shaped me. It is my favorite Metallica album. It is definitely their best work in my opinion. That doesn't mean it doesn't suck at parts. The parts that are, are good are, are phenomenal. The parts that weren't just, and, and, and I blame so much of it on ear burn. 
And some of it just is not held up like I had hoped that it would. I'm going to give it a 2.1. Davey. And Justice for All is the last Metallica album that I can say that there are no skippers on. I listened to the album where it had the bass tracks being higher up in the mix on YouTube and someone doing a bass cover of the whole album. And it's such a shame that Newstead's bass was pushed so far back in the mix. Sure, he may not be Cliff Burton, but he was a solid replacement. And he played his he played his role well. He was effortlessly cool. So to sum it up, the shorter straw has been pulled for Jason. They certainly did not do him justice in this album. Now, after this album, there are some songs that I like from their later albums. But that's when they changed for the worse, in my opinion. The first four Metallica albums, Kill 'em All, Ride the Lightning, Master of Puppets, and this album, and Justice for All are their ultimate peak when they were kings. Now, Justice is my third favorite Metallica album behind Master of Puppets number two and Ride the Lightning being number one. So for that, I'll give Justice for All a five stars. Like I said, this is the last Ultimate Metallica album, and it gets very iffy for me after that. Nick. Okay, so overall, I think this is a great album, um, and it's the Metallica album that I come back to most often, usually when I'm in the gym or running or whatever. But uh, but yeah, it comes on a fair bit, I would say. One thing I noticed when I really started to study the songs in preparation for this was the the difference between the the kind of one of the conceptions uh, that people have of this album and and the reality of it. Um, I've read people kind of criticize it for being too excessive in the number of riffs and the often kind of stop-start nature of the songs. And and even, you know, the band themselves have said um, that to an extent, which is why they, they went, you know, different on the Black Album. And I've always, you know, I've heard it referred to as being a progressive metal album almost. And uh, I don't know, when you really um, look at the strong song structures, I think they're, they're pretty conventional um, with the verse, pre-chorus and chorus and guitar solo in, in most of them. Um, I think it's just that the, the riffs are, are pretty kind of jumpy and there's plenty of tempo changes and things like that. And there are a lot of riffs, but the actual structure of the song is is fairly conventional. I can see why they went in a different direction after this album. And you know, I, I do like the Black Album and, and a fair bit of Load as well. Um, and I'm, I'm not ashamed to say it. But I can uh, also see why a lot of the original hardcore fans felt they were they were selling out. For me, I, I haven't heard any of the, um, the the kind of remix versions uh, with with the bass, but I, I'd like to hear kind of an official remix version of this album um, with some actual bass. And uh, you would have thought that would have happened by now, but presumably Lars and James have determined that this is how they want it to sound, um, or they're just assholes. But anyway, I'm going to give it. A, I don't know, I put a 4.25 here, and I'm torn between that and a 4.5, but uh, I'll stick with a 4.25, I think. Um, but yeah, cracking album. After bassist Cliff Burton died on September 27, 1986, when their tour bus crashed on an icy road in Sweden, Metallica decided to carry on and quickly began a search for Burton's replacement. After over 50 auditions, the band chose Jason Newstead from the thrash metal band Flotsam and Jetsam to take over bass duties, and to break him in, they recorded the Garage Days re-revisited EP in 1987. Then, after playing some festival dates in the summer of 87, Metallica entered the studio in January 1988 with producer Mike Klink, known for his work with Guns N' Roses, to start work on the new record. The band was unhappy with their progress with Klink, so he was fired and Fleming Rasmussen, producer of Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets, was brought in to produce or kind of save the new album. The instruments were recorded separately, and Lars Ulrich used a click track to help him record his intricate drum parts, while James Hetfield wrote lyrics during the recording sessions. 
When it was finished and it came time for Steve Thompson to mix the album, he claimed that Ulrich instructed him to turn the bass down so that it was nearly inaudible. James later said that Jason played the exact same bass parts as the guitars and that matching frequencies contributed to the fucked up sound of the album, but I call bullshit. And I believe that in their grief over losing Burton, the band subconsciously punished Newstead by freezing him out. The album cover was created by Stephen Gorman, depicting a cracked statue of Lady Justice bound by ropes with her scales full of money. And when And Justice for All was released, it was received very well by critics and fans, despite its compromised sound and lengthy runtime. The band went on the Damage Justice tour to support the record and saw its popularity rise higher and higher. As I said, this is where I came in with this band, so this album holds a special place for me. Yeah, it sounds like shit, I know that now, but back when it was new, I just thought it was how thrash metal sounded. You can make a case that the songs are too long, the band itself got sick of playing them, and Lars would always have trouble playing them, he had to dumb down his parts in concert, and really, only the track one has been consistently part of the set list over the years, with some tracks never played for decades after this release. This isn't my favorite Metallica album, but if it sounded better, it probably would be. The songs are there. The music is heavy, complex, and challenging. And lyrically, Metallica touches upon political, personal, and environmental themes that made them stand out from other bands of this kind at the time. This album was my gateway to thrash metal and, by proxy, extreme metal in general. And I gotta say... Lately, I've been listening to Modern Metallica. The band just put out a new album, 72 Seasons, about a month and a half ago at the time of this recording. And I find that I like a few songs on it and a whole lot of meh, okay, songs to round it out. It was so awesome for me to go back to Justice to prepare for this podcast and remind myself how great this band truly was. As far as I'm concerned, this is Metallica's last great album. I give Injustice for All a four and a half. And hey, if you're a fan of the stuff this band did after this album, I got no problem with that. I got no problem with you. But for me, the first four albums will always be my Metallica. Now I'd like to thank this round table of guest co-pilots who contributed to this episode. When I call your name, if any of you guys have anything you want to plug or promote, feel free to tell us all about it. Matt Carwick, the fat bearded vinyl guy. Well, fatbeardedvinylguy.com is the website. Links to I got links to Facebook, Instagram, the YouTube channel. Both the Facebook and the Instagram are at Fat Bearded Vinyl Guy. I've paused making videos for now, but I am posting an on this day spin on Facebook and Instagram each day. Yes, I know it's hacky, but it's content, and it also gives me a chance to flex with what I have in my vinyl collection. So it's better than nothing, and it still gives me a reason to keep paying for the website. So that keeps the uh, FBVG brand in my possession. Tony Thomas. Well, I don't know if you heard the news, uh, but a little bit of synergy is on hiatus because I had a hard drive crash. And along with that, and my lack of preparation, yes, I didn't back up my data. I just pushed it and pushed it and pushed it. I lost three years of data and music. So I'm, I'm recovering at the moment. But... I am looking for an angel investor that's willing to throw me a hard drive because that's all I need. <laughs> but barring that, I'll be back up and running shortly. I do have uh, some stellar guests that are that are lined up just waiting for me to come back running out the gate. Fuck, Tony. I didn't know that. I'm sorry, man. Yeah, it's all good, man. Voodoo Child Davy Lee Smith. 
I'm so sorry to hear that, Tony, that hopefully, hopefully you get your stuff going on back up again soon. I'm Appreciate very sorry you. to hear that. Thank you, Dave. Absolutely. Absolutely. No problem. I do have a YouTube. It's Davey Lee Smitty. I'll go ahead and spell that out. Capital D-A-V-E-Y, capital L-E-E, capital S-M-I-T-Y. I do my own content on there. So if you want to go and uh, check it out, you certainly may. Um, you can find me on Twitter with the same name. And I, uh, you know, I talk music and a lot of other stuff too. So if you want to uh, chat with me about stuff, then uh, hit me up on there and uh, we'll pr- probably have a good time with that. But other than that, thank you for having me uh, back on here. It was a pleasure. Nick Dunning. Yeah, nothing really to promote, sadly. No, I can't really think of anything. But yeah, I've had a fantastic time again. Thanks for having me back on. I'm just going to say happy 50th birthday to my beautiful wife, Rena. Um, Not that she'll ever listen to this, but if she ever does, you never know, it might make her smile. (laughs) Happy birthday. Cool. So thank you very much for having me, Aaron. It's been uh, great fun, as usual. Guys, this was great. Thank you so much. And that's going to do it for this episode. You can find this podcast on all the podcasting platforms wherever you listen to them. If you like what you hear, please subscribe or follow the podcast and leave us a review. If you'd like to contact us directly, we can be reached at RidiculousRockRecords at gmail.com or also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page, where there's a link to hear each podcast. We're also on Twitter at R4PodcastAaron and Instagram under R4Podcaster. If you feel the podcast has value and would like to make a contribution to support it, please head over to Patreon and the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews page and sign up on one of the monthly tiers. Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, reviews, and or suggestions at any of those places I just described. We'd love to hear from you. So for the R4 Podcast, I'm Aaron, and see ya! Color our blackened! Blackened! Dear mother, dear father! Okay, I want to try something here, so give me a second. Did y'all got, did y'all got that? No. Fuck. Nope. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I want to. I want to try. I want to try this. I'm sorry. Did y'all get that? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Man, I'm just stumped. Real quick, I was what I was trying to do. I was trying to put that Beavis and Butthead video when they talked about one. Yeah, I got, I got that. It didn't come through at I'm all, so dude. Sorry. The second time you tried, I got, li- I got, uh, like, like that. Uh, <laughs> that's, all, that's all I got. So it didn't, didn't do I'm anything. I'm sorry. I was, I was wanting to, I was wanting to do like what Lou usually does. I don't know how he does it, but yeah, that's what I kind of figured you were doing. Maybe you should like yeah. try to stick. No, well. maybe you should try to stick that at the end of the episode as like a little bonus or something like that. He, he has his clips. He has his clips in the, uh, in his mixer, so it comes straight oh, through. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. That's why his always sounds so clear. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, like I, I'm, I don't know if that's a bit too much to do. But I was like, maybe you should put that little Beavis and Butthead thing at that, the end. That could be the chipmunk like section right there, dude. I mean, it just might make it. <laughs>
It just might make yeah. it. 